This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. living should be easy, but oftentimes it doesn't quite feel like that. Brightly believes that small, planet-focused lifestyle swaps can help us all fight back against climate change every single day. Part of being a conscious consumer means that when it's time to buy a new item, considering a product that is eco-friendlier than the alternative can actually make a difference. Brightly's shop focuses on easy, effective eco-products designed to help you reduce waste and make smart, planet-focused decisions around your house every day, whether it's stopping food waste with our Veggie Saver bag or eliminating single-use plastic wrap with our bowl covers. Pick from dozens of our favorite eco-swaps that have been thoroughly vetted and tested by our team, including yours truly, who has just done so much testing. <laughs> so head to brightly.eco slash shop and use code GOODTOGETHER to receive 20% off your first order with us. Good Together listeners, uh, I'm thrilled to bring Jessica Cross on to the podcast today because at the end of the day, I feel like we're all talking a lot about greenhouse gas emissions and what they're doing to our atmosphere, but we don't really focus that much about our oceans. Um, And so that's a question best posed to Jessica Cross, a research oceanographer who's with the National Ocean and Atmospheric administration, otherwise known as NOAA, based here in Seattle. And actually, Jessica's very close to me. I think I'm right next to their uh, NOAA's headquarters over here, like the neighborhood over next to mine. So, so fun. (laughs) Um, Jessica has spent her career focusing on ocean acidification in the Arctic regions and the effect that those changing conditions are now having on natural cycles and biology. So welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thanks a lot, Laura. It's good to be with you today. Yes. Um, So I wonder if you can just introduce yourself and kind of let our audience know a little bit about what brought you to this particular area of study, um, you know, around ocean acidification. So interesting. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to do an undergraduate research fellowship. They offered uh, those kinds of opportunities at Rhodes, which is where I went to school. Uh, And I got really into this idea that carbon dioxide is uh, having an impact not just on our atmosphere, but also on all sorts of different reservoirs around the planet. The ocean is one of them. The land is one of them. Uh, And I decided that I wanted to use my computer uh, to see if I could study how a carbon dioxide model molecules from the atmosphere actually interacted with water molecules at the surface of the ocean. I very quickly figured out that that was a terrible way to try and figure out how those chemical reactions occur because the ocean (laughs) is obviously a lot bigger than single molecules. Okay. Uh, And I was lucky to be able to link up with some professors who were um, 
taking samples and doing modeling. Uh, and I entered graduate school at the University of Alaska Fairbanks to study ocean acidification. That's fascinating. And I, I think that's just, you know, specifically, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of talk about what, what that process is and, and why this matters. But for me, what's interesting is, you know, you, you started so early on in your career and you thought, you know what, I am, you know, really, really interested in exploring this further and then taking that a step, you know, even a step further than that and, and thinking about, well, how is this actually impacting all of these other systems that might seem unrelated. So I'm wondering, can you explain a little bit about what ocean acidification is to our audience and sort of, you know, what's going on with that process? Yeah, absolutely. So I started thinking about, you know, molecule to molecule interactions. The lab that I worked in was a theoretical chemistry lab. Um, Most of the other folks uh, that uh, I worked with in uh, undergrad were studying how proteins um, and their substrates fit together. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, biomedical applications for stuff like that. And I was interested in more, you know, how how these kinds of interactions happened in broader ecosystems. And as I got more and more into ocean acidification, I realized that while I might be studying a chemical reaction, this has real-world consequences for all kinds of living things, uh, especially in the oceans. Um, so what happens is that, you know, on a molecular level, when we're talking, you know, um, uh, molecules to molecules, carbon dioxide to seawater, uh, what happens is that carbon dioxide initiates a cascade of chemical reactions in the surface ocean. Um, This has all kinds of implications. It just really sets off this massive chain of dominoes, right? So in the end, uh, the two key factors that we really care about when it comes to ocean acidification is that the end of this cascade of chemical reactions usually results in there being more hydrogen ions floating around in the ocean. That's where ocean acidification gets its name from. Um, This is a, a, a lowering of pH or an acidification. But there's a second factor, too. That cascade of chemical reactions that's caused by how carbon dioxide in the atmosphere interacts with seawater at the ocean surface surface also results in a reduction of carbonate ions. And a lot of organisms in the ocean use carbonate ions to regulate their um, biological functions, whether that is things like building shells um, and skeletons out of carbonate ions or really just using those um, or using those in a sensory capacity to sort of feel out their environment around them. Okay. Wow. I mean, so, so that really kind of explains how, how the process is working and really like why, why it's important to track this. But I mean, I think, you know, the, for, you know, at its very basic level, right? I mean, we're, we're tracking that seawater is becoming more acidic. And, you know, considering that most organisms in the, in the um, ocean aren't used to that level of acidity, acidity, you know, that to me, that's kind of how I used to think about it, which sounds like it's like a really, really simplistic way of thinking about it, but perhaps not totally wrong. <laughs> hey, it absolutely isn't totally wrong. It's a great thought. I mean, think about the things that you're used to when you experience any kind of big change in your life. We just experienced one here in Seattle where we went from summer smoke to winter cold. Oh my God. Overnight. So quick, right? Overnight. Right? I don't know if your seasonal allergies went off like a bomb. Mine yes. certainly did. Yes. It, it creates a little bit of stress in your life, right? Yeah. Maybe not fatal, 
Um, but certainly annoying. This is something that you have to adjust for or make different choices for. And the ocean pH is doing the exact same things to organisms that are living in the ocean. It stresses them out a little bit. Uh, and there's all kinds of ways that stress can manifest, just like there's all kinds of ways that stress can manifest for you and me. Well, I mean, that makes total sense. And you're right. Like we we did have such a strange weather event here. And we have, I mean, for the past few years, there, we've had so many unseasonable um, things going on in Seattle. And, you know, of course, we're not the only ones affected by something like this. So I, you know, I think it's really interesting to tie it back um, to these, you know, sort of real life examples that we can all think about. So as we've kind of understood a little bit more about like what the process is and sort of maybe how it could it could start to affect what's going on in the ocean, let, let's let's drill down into that a little bit more too. So what are some of these main effects that we're starting to see um, because of this change in acidity. Right. So uh, as oceanographers, as researchers, we tend to break ecosystems down into their functional parts. Um, and all of those different parts of ecosystems tend to have sort of similar reactions to changes in their environment, which is why they get grouped that way. So I'll do the same thing here. Uh, let's start at the top and think about things like fish, right, that are highly evolved. They're sort of the uh, uh, hoity-toity parts of the ecosystem, right? They have complex nervous systems and sensory challenges and or, or uh, uh, sensory systems. And ocean acidification creates sensory challenges for them. Uh, and so it's sort of we're still trying to understand all of the different ways that uh, changes in pH interfere with those sensory systems. Um, but sometimes we think it interferes essentially with a fish's sense of smell. Um, does it really, uh, how does it react to the smell of a predator or the smell of blood in the water? How does a fish react to the scent of prey? Can it really distinguish those signals from each other in acidified conditions? We're not really sure yet. We just know that it's a little wonky, right? That fish aren't making good choices um, the same way that when we're stressed, maybe we don't make the best choices, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's also about whether or not those fish have enough to eat. Um, so ocean acidification impacts not just these higher level organisms like fish and whales that can really self-regulate uh, in a lot of ways. It also impacts, you know, other kinds of organisms. Yeah. Taking a step down uh, in the evolutionary scale, let's talk about shellfish. Uh, so organisms like oysters and corals um, and crabs, for example, that make hard shells and skeletons out of calcium carbonate, they need those carbonate ions that are just floating around in the water. And ocean acidification makes those less prevalent. Uh, and so that means there's fewer carbonate ions to go around. So and maybe so what happens? Like what, so are they, they're just not able to maintain their shells? Does that mean they, they, they die or how does that, how does it affect them? Right. It depends. Um, the more evolved you are, the more capacity you have to maybe make some adjustments. Maybe let's say if you have a certain amount of food uh, that you can eat that sort of helps you upregulate your energy, you can search for more carbonate ions or filter more of them out. You can keep, you know, use that extra metabolic capacity to keep your shell building up, but maybe you can't. Maybe that's not the way that uh, your genetics uh, play out, your genes play out. Maybe instead, uh, as a shellfish, you uh, just start to build your shell slower and slower or stay smaller and smaller. Uh, and you can imagine how that may have impacts on uh, people that want to harvest big shellfish yep. uh, to eat, for 
example. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I've noticed that. So um, my husband and I, so we're, we're based very close to you here in Seattle, um, but we also um, spend time down um you know, by the water, like a lot of us right. do. Um, and we've noticed in the region that we're, we're more familiar with, um, kind of close to Tacoma, um, they have, you know, not allowed crabbing for a long time. And that had been, you know, something that was, you know, a, a general tradition in the region. And so we, the, the, the crabbing ban has, um, you know, lasted longer than we've been going down there, but people keep saying, oh, you know, the good old days, we're able to get all these crabs. And so I'm curious to know, like, yes, I mean, I, I would imagine that this ocean acidification, in, in addition to just impacting the wildlife and everything we're talking about, it's obviously going to impact, you know, industries that are built on, you know, fishing and, um, you know, shellfish harvesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Right now, one of the clearest examples we have of impacts of ocean acidification on an industry like that actually comes from Washington State. Okay. Um, and uh, what happened was that some CO2-rich, carbonate-poor seawater, um, uh, there was a big event uh, that wherein there was lots of this water that was pulled up onto the coast of Washington. And that's the exact same water that a lot of shellfish hatcheries were using to filter their tanks, right? To cycle their tanks. And unfortunately, what this meant was that all the oyster larvae, not as big, not as able to regulate their own homeostasis, really struggled and ended up dying in those environments. And there was this huge hatchery crash cost lots of money. People weren't really sure where they were going to get their seed stock from to actually support, you know, some of these farmed shellfish. Uh, and that's really been kind of the classic example uh, that we use of impacts of ocean acidification on fisheries. When it comes to things like crabbing bands and some of these organisms that are able to regulate their metabolism, are able to regulate their internal processes a little bit more, it takes more than one stressor to kind of kick them over the edge, right? If it was just ocean acidification, maybe they could handle that. If it was just increases in temperature, maybe they could handle that. But the reality is they're not experiencing any one of these stressors by themselves. They get the whole portfolio at once. And as researchers, it can be really hard for us to tease apart what all of the individual impacts of each stressor is. So I don't know if the crabbing ban is an ocean acidification problem, but I can probably say it's not helping. Exactly. No, that makes total sense. And you're right. There's there's so many different, um, you know, things going into the equation um, when we think about impacts on specific um, populations. So so that makes total sense to me. And yeah, speaking more about the shellfish industry, um, we have a statistic here that was saying that, um, you know, if if the ocean acidification uh, problem continues to be left unchecked, it's estimated that the U.S. shellfish industry, <laughs> it's like a, a, a tongue teaser, um, can lose more than 400 million dollars annually by the year 2100. So, I mean, it's, this is something that is going to continue to impact us, um, you know, from that, uh, you know, from that perspective alone. And one thing that I, I thought was interesting that you, that you mentioned when you were talking about the impacts, um, you know, about that one um, anecdote from the Washington state perspective is look, I mean, it, it that um, event cost the shellfish industry, you know, lots of money. And so, you know, from our perspective, when we think about conscious consumerism, we recognize that like the buying of new things is not going to get us out of climate change. But what what it can do, what at least the the, the money part can do, is is really um, galvanize big corporations to act. So I'm curious to know, like, you know, as we start to see impact felt from a dollar perspective, like 
are big industries, you know, maybe the shellfish industry, maybe there's a few others that you know of, like, are they starting to pay attention because it's affecting their bottom line? No question about it. Uh, I do most of my work in Alaska every year. Uh, and Alaska is one of the regions that uh, has really taken an interest, sort of looked at the Washington state example and said, we don't want that to happen to us. So how do we monitor conditions to make sure that it doesn't? Uh, and I've been a part of trying to work with you know, local hatcheries, crab fishermen, fishermen's unions around the state to really educate them about what the risks are uh, and how how they can mitigate those risks, right? A lot of times that's about being conservative with fisheries management, right? Let's really work hard not to overfish or to engage in sustainable yeah. fishing practices. And Alaska is really good at that. That being said, all of these stressors together probably has led to a big crash in the crab fishery in Alaska uh, across the last several years. Again, we're not really sure we can pinpoint exactly which part of the problem led to that fisheries crash, but we do know for sure that crab industry, that crab population in Alaska has been experiencing so many stressors over the last several years that it you know, uh, they were really hovering on the edge to begin with. Um, and, and, that, and that's a challenge, right? When you talk about, when you talk about fisheries management and you talk about mitigation, you know, that's really wonky. Uh, it's easy for me to talk about that with like industry insiders, yeah. right? But what can regular people do? What can regular, you know, uh, everyday Americans do to really encourage those kinds of sustainable practices? And, and like you were saying, it's encouraging corporations towards some of these sustainable options. Yeah, and that was actually going to be my next question. So we we talked a little bit about like yeah, what 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 the future is going to look like if we don't, you know, start to see some changes happening. One thing that I we didn't quite get into, but you alluded to it a little bit, which is like, you know, if we keep going down the path that we're going on, there are going to be winners and losers in the marine plant system, right? Like there yeah. are some plants such as um, you know, seagrass that can potentially benefit from increased carbon, but they're also going to, you know, face challenges as well. So there's there's definitely going to be winners and losers here. And so as we think about solutions to, you know, helping the problem or helping like mitigate the problem of um, ocean acidification, there there have been some, you know, some positive, I think, from, from native seaweed. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the ways that we're thinking about mitigating ocean acidification risk now uh, is through uh, really trying to support carbon removals. Okay. And in some cases, that can be really easy, thinking about like restoring an ecosystem that may have been damaged. Uh, so restoring natural seagrass beds or natural kelp beds, it's a win-win for everybody, right? Um, yeah. The advantage is that marine plants they use carbon dioxide, they breathe carbon dioxide just like we breathe oxygen. And so that's naturally pulling carbon dioxide out of the system. And that can help mitigate ocean acidification a little bit, we think. There are nuances. Okay. Uh, uh, but also farming that kind of stuff, really trying to pull as much carbon dioxide out of the ocean as we can, uh, might also help mitigate ocean acidification. And there's ongoing work studying that those uh, options in California and then as well in Alaska. 
in Alaska, one example that I really like to point to uh, is a group uh, that is trying to come up with an indigenous kelp farmers bill of rights. Uh, that's trying oh, to wow. highlight that's the fascinating, <laughs> right? Trying to highlight the sustainable ways that kelp farming and macroalgal farming in our ocean coasts has been used, you know, since time immemorial. Uh, and how can we do that sustainably? How can we use those as restoration practices? How can they share that knowledge with the rest of us? I mean, I, th I think that's so interesting. And I, you know, like I was saying before, I think as we hear about big problems, like big, scary problems like this, it can be really easy for us to just kind of, you know, put our heads in the sand and think like, okay, I don't know anything about ocean acidification, even though I just listened to this podcast, like I, I still don't feel like I know enough and I don't really know what I can do to help. And so I agree that like, you know, number one, we can, you know, really put pressure on some of these bigger companies who have roles to play um, in these industries to, to do things in more sustainable fashions. Um, we can also support startups and, and companies who are trying to, yeah, capture carbon out of the atmosphere. And I think um, there's so many cool ones that we hear about all the time. And, you know, so more power to them as they develop these really necessary, but, you know, technically challenging um, systems. Um, and another thing that that you I think you would put in our, our show notes that I thought was really interesting is um, the the need to invest in clean energy. So tell us a little bit more about how that maps back to um, the problem of ocean acidification. Absolutely. The more carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, the more carbon dioxide the ocean soaks up the more wide the water gets. Very simple. Um, so one of the best things that we can do to slow ocean acidification is stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that, that, that's about as simple as it gets, right? <laughs> like, like, yeah. Everything. One of the I love it. I like to give is that recently, like my mom has been hearing me talk about all of this kind of stuff. Um, it's time for her to start replacing some of the tools that she keeps in her garage. Okay edger, a weed whacker, a mower and that kind of stuff. And I have been really trying like, mom, you got to get rid of the gas powered stuff. And she is, she's starting to buy battery powered tools for her. Yeah. And that's what it takes. Simple yeah. as that. Absolutely. No. And the other thing that's really interesting about that too, is there is such a, um, you know, there's like a, a lot of people, um, especially Older folks are just people who have been, you know, um, consumers in this space for a long time. There are definitely misconceit, like um, misplaced notions around the effectiveness of, you know, electric uh, tools or just things that are more eco-friendly, right? So I, I, I am sure there's a bunch of people who think, well, I'm really used to using um, a gas-powered leaf blower, and it, you know, it, it has a lot of power behind it. Um, so if I go use an electric one, I, I'm worried it's not going to work as well. well. I mean. Maybe that was the case a, while, a long time ago before we had the technology that we do now, but we definitely have options that work well. We um, we have an electric leaf blower here, and not only is it effective, but I'm always just amazed at how quiet it is <laughs> right? compared to like the old-fashioned ones, right? And so it's like, that's just a really nice side effect, but it works fine, you know? So I'm sure there's there's always going to be a little bit of like education that goes with that, right? Well, and you have to develop the solutions that work best for you. I can yes. imagine a landscaping company is going to need something with a little bit more industrial power. Yeah. But for me, just taking care of my garden, I can make different choices. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And, and it, there's never a one size fits all solution to a product recommendation, right? Like what's exactly. good for one person is not necessarily going to be um, good for everybody else. So yes, I love the, I love the um, thought process of just electrifying everything because uh, 
I, I think that it's just, we just really have to get to that perspective. You also mentioned um, the, you know, the, just the general um, need to obviously conserve and restore our coastal and marine ecosystems. So what can the average consumer do to help with that, um, you know, um, that cause? Right. One of the biggest things uh, uh, in sort of the coastal conservation movement right now uh, is trying to reduce plastic waste. Um, so uh, supporting efforts to clean up plastic, supporting efforts to study microplastics, which is what happens when plastic erodes or dissolves in the ocean. Uh, those are really important facets for conservation as well. Um, so get that reusable water bottle, keep it as long as you can. Yep. And you know what? People like kind of get on our case sometimes like, oh my gosh, can you guys please stop talking about plastic waste? But it's something that we're really passionate about here because I think there are just so many items that we all grew up with using all the time that we just don't even think twice about like plastic wrap, I think is a huge one that just, you know, just infiltrated our, um, you know, our daily lives, like Ziploc bags, all these things. And there are reusable alternatives to these things that work just as well. Um, there's also people that are coming up with like compostable, um, you know, plastic wrap type things made out of other things. So there's, there's all sorts of different, you know, options for, for consumers out there. And from my perspective, it's just, it, it, it just starts by just simply thinking about things. And speaking of thinking about things, I mean, for me, I'm constantly, um, <laughs> constantly like thinking about microplastics and not trying to freak out too much, but microplastics are a big problem. Jessica's totally right. We need to make sure that we are funding um, additional research into the space because we cannot even, I, I just think we have just scratched the surface of what's going on with that. I'm, and I'm, I'm sure Noah is keeping a close eye on this as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like you were saying, one of the best things that we can do uh, about climate change, about all of these kinds of uh, impacts on our coast for conservation, the best thing that we can do is talk about it. We'll learn from each other. We'll learn what we don't know. We don't know a lot about microplastics yet, but you're talking about it, which I think is great. We're talking about ocean acidification, right? The more we talk about these issues, the more that we can uh, find solutions together uh, and come up with pathways uh, for adaptation and mitigation. I couldn't, I couldn't summarize it better myself. I mean, you're right. There, none of us are going to be total experts in this space, right? Even people that dedicate their lives to to these certain um, topics, no one's going to know every single thing about it. But it is good for us to familiarize ourselves with some of these topics. Be ready to, you know, think more critically about them when we hear them being brought up. I mean, I always love that I have general knowledge about a pretty wide um, breadth of topics in the environmental space so that, for instance, like we just came off of an election yesterday, right? When you start to hear politicians like throw words around whether they're trying to use them for good or bad to scare people or to galvanize people, right? Like at least you might think to yourself, well, like, is that actually what they're saying? Or, you know, being a little bit more critical and also being more um, willing to, you know, maybe vote for a, um, a policy that might actually impact um, the environment. And you actually can read through, you know, when you go to the ballot, you read those, uh, those, um, what do you call it? Uh, you know, descriptions of, of different things that you can pass. Uh, you know, it's always a really good way to just, you know, educate oneself. So totally agree, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, the more that we talk about these things, the more that we hear about, you know, greenwashing and what actually counts as, you know, something that's helpful and action that's helpful and action that might not necessarily be so helpful, but kind of looks good on paper, right? How do you tell the differences between 
these different options that are out there, right? You know, I, uh, 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 my gas company offers me the opportunity to offset any emissions that come from using the natural gas that powers my stove and my heat in the house that I live in, right? Um, and, you know, I'm an expert, so I can certainly evaluate whether or not that's a good idea for myself, and I know where to find that information, but also just making sure that that information is available to everyone. How is that offset generated? Is it a high-quality offset or a low-quality offset? So those kinds of options, really evaluating offset quality, that's also not something that we're very good at broadly yet. Um, and so supporting efforts that really try and uh, develop high-quality offsets, high-quality actions that can really uh, impact the environment and do some good, uh, that's always great. And we can't do any of that if we're not talking about the issues, which is why I'm so glad to have been able to be here with you. Awesome. Well, this was a great conversation, and I totally agree using the, the term carbon offset as a blanket sort of get out of jail free card like that it drives me nuts right or or companies that are just like doing things very that are very bad for the environment and then they're like oh well we're just going to write off you know a big chunk of our um well not usually a big chunk a very small chunk of our profits into quote unquote carbon offsets it's like no 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 that is not that's not the answer let's let's try and solve the problem at its root right that doesn't mean to say that there's not good, high quality carbon offsets like Jessica just mentioned. So, um, you know, actually, I don't know, I don't think if we've done an episode specifically on that, but that's a good reminder for me to, to put that one on the calendar for us to kind of go into the different variations there. But yeah, Jessica, I, I had such a nice time t- chatting with you. Maybe I'll come over and say hi at the office. Like I literally could walk to it. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It would be so good to see you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Maybe I'll pop over there and say hi one day. Um, Yeah. I live very close to Matthew's beach. So I just really, we're just right down the street. (laughs) Fantastic. I do a lot of stargazing at Matthew's beach. um, Oh, wonderful. It's dark this time of year and we'd be happy to give you a tour of the lab. Oh yeah. I would love it. I'd love it. So yes. um, Wonderful. Thank you so much for for, um, coming on the podcast, Jessica. And what we'll do listeners, um, there were a lot of really interesting statistics and um, resources that we talked about in today's episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. Um, And as always, I'm very interested in what's going on with NOAA and our other governmental agencies dedicated to, um, you know, protecting the environment. So thank you so much for joining us. joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together. So have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.